1: This is Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. It's a podcast about workplace culture, psychology, and life. Hello, I'm Bruce Daisley. Thank you for listening today. Signing up to the newsletter is always the best way to get all of the latest information. You'll see that at the top of the show notes here. Today is a conversation that a lot of people have asked about, really. A lot of people, either when I'm, I'm out Uh, in firms and and having conversations with companies or whether people get in touch with me on the podcast, they often say, I wonder if you can cover anything related to generational challenges at work and this this emergent idea that we've got uh, more generations at work than ever before. Baby boomers, Gen X, we've got millennials and now Gen Z are all in the workplace. Uh, Gen Z, Gen Z, are uh, that generation of workers sort of emergent who are born after the millennium, so they are up to the age of twenty two right now twenty three and uh, the The question is often asked whether younger millennials and gen Zs have got a slightly different perspective on work. And why might that be? And how would we address it? And I think it raises really big questions. I always think about this podcast about making work better, about thinking about creating positive, well-motivated, energised workplace cultures. And one of the questions that plagues me is whether, oh, I guess uncharitably, you might consider that to be a degree of manipulation, is trying to get people motivated in their jobs, a way to trick them into being motivated in their jobs. And that's why I wanted to have this conversation here. Ellen Scott is a writer who's written a lot about these themes. She, She used to be at Metro. Now she's at Stylist. She's written on her own Substack as well. And I've included links to all of those things in the blog. I was particularly interested in a piece that she wrote a few months ago, right at the start of the discussion about quiet quitting. And I got in touch with her at the time. It was, it was before it sort of, um, it cascaded and became a, an article and a theme that was covered for extensively for the next few weeks. Ellen got right in there and, and responded to it very quickly. And I got in touch with her and she said at the time, look, I'll, I'll come and have a conversation with you, but I'm getting so much pushback on it right now. I want to leave it till things settle down. We actually discussed what that pushback was about, but it gave me an insight into her perspective. Uh, She writes, she'll say in this conversation that she's a millennial, she's younger end of the millennial spectrum, but I think her perspective is also very relevant to that Gen Z take on things. You know, the idea of these generational archetypes is, by the very nature, it's a bit simplistic. You're never quite going to have something represented, a, a, I think a millennial goes up to the age of 44, 45. So, you know, a 45-year-old down to a 23-year-old is clearly a huge uh, a, a huge spectrum of different opinions. 40, 43, 44-year-olds might even own their own property. Obviously, someone who's 23, 24 is right at the journey at the start of the work. So these things have got a, an imprecision baked into them. But anyway, I was interested in Ellen's take. I'm going to jump straight in. It's a fascinating perspective. It's, it's really sort of interesting take on what work the deal that work represents for younger workers and how organizations, bosses, all of us might reflect on that and consider on that. I think you'll really enjoy this conversation. Here's my chat with Ellen Scott. Ellen, thank you so much for joining me. I wonder if to kick us off, you could just introduce who you are and what you do.
2: So I'm Ellen. I'm the deputy digital editor at Stylist. Before that, I was the Lifestyle and Weekend editor at Metro.co.uk and also used to co-host a podcast called Mentally Yours.
1: And along the way, I've seen a lot of the stuff that you've written has been about work or adjacent to work, work themes. Do you see yourself as someone who specialises in work? What's What's your relationship with it?
2: I think it's kind of accidental. Like I definitely didn't start writing and set out to go, okay, I want to write about work culture and work identity. But I think I realise how big of a part it plays in my life and um, mental health specifically, because that was already the kind of specialism that I was leaning into. And I realized how much of work you take home with you and how much it impacts your sense of self and your stress levels and all of that kind of thing. Um, so like I say, it was kind of an accident, but an inevitable accident, because of course work is going to have an impact on those other parts that I maybe initially found more interesting, like relationships and mental health and just general well-being and sense of self. And,
1: and even the framing of that work and mental health is, is, It's probably something that's risen in people's consciousness and awareness in the last five years, maybe 10 years. It's really interesting to sort of reflect back because I think previous generations might have, well, self-medicated. I think they might have justified long hours working by going to the pub or you'd hear those laboured phrases that the culture here was work hard, play hard. And what it meant was that maybe the excesses of the job were just mitigated by large amounts of booze and and it's just really interesting now that more recently uh, mental health has been more of a consideration just d- dousing everything in in lager just doesn't seem to be what's appealing to a, a younger generation and that's what i'm interested in. do you think it's generational or just think that we've just gone into a different era of understanding the impact of work upon us
2: I think it's both. I think mental health in general, I would say even a decade ago, we weren't talking about mental health in the same way that we are now. We weren't as open about having anxiety or OCD or depression. So that's kind of a separate conversation that was already happening. And then at the same time, I think the my generation, which is millennials and Gen Z, are just really starting to question why we're doing things the way that they're currently done, especially in regards to work, we're starting to go, well, why do we have to work Monday to Friday? Why does it have to be nine to five? Why would you have to be at a job that you don't necessarily enjoy just to make enough money to pay rent? It's just this complete shift in questioning these things that have always been done and that have been the kind of standard I don't know exactly why that's happening. I think maybe in part it's because, you know, with the rise of the internet and social media, we're more able to talk about these things on a much wider scale. We're able to see other people's work life and see, okay, this person actually seems to really enjoy their job. Whereas before, at least for me, when I was growing up, the only jobs I could see were my parents and they were both teachers. So the concept of kind of different working lives and different working patterns was completely alien but then when we're exposed to the internet you can you know go on YouTube and watch people's vlogs of like a day in their life as a content creator but also as a fashion designer you're exposed to all the different ways that work can be done and what it can be like that it makes you start to question like okay maybe I don't have to put up with the kind of standard office job that I thought I had to do.
1: Okay. So I guess because works are like this private thing that you don't see what someone else is doing elsewhere, that being able to compare and seeing a wider diversity of jobs has enabled, I guess, comparison. Is that right?
2: Yeah. And I think also at the same time, there's been such a shift in how we think of ourselves like, in terms of therapy, for example, 20 years ago, saying that you were in therapy would be considered a really strange thing. Now, the idea of self-development and, you know, doing personal work on yourself and what your purpose is and all of that is so normalized that, of course, it's going to come up with work as well. We're starting to go, okay, I'm thinking about what I really want out of life. And a big part of that is going to be what my work actually is. Like, what is my purpose i think that's the kind of difference is we're not just having jobs that are just going to make us money and are just going to be a 9 to 5 we want something bigger from work something that gives us some sense of identity or feeling like we've done something to the world
1: i'm interested in that idea well what maybe different things you know identity is sort of one issue and i've witnessed that a little bit where people are wanting or not wanting to associate themselves with a certain organization Our jobs do play a big part in our identity and a sense of pride in where you work is clearly a sort of huge motivation for for people. You know, some people are like, I I don't want my identity tarnished with that organisation. The purpose thing, I sometimes find it slightly harder to buy into. Easy maybe on an individual level, but I think on a a company level, because it's been so heavily appropriated by business gurus, I kind of don't buy it sometimes myself talk to me then you say you're a millennial you're a young millennial uh, but talk to me then about sort of gen z's millennials convince me how purpose plays a part in how they think about their jobs
2: well i think the difficult thing is i'm saying that from my perspective and for me personally purpose in what i'm doing is vital and it's kind of why i'm motivated to work But among my friends, and especially younger friends, I'm considered a massive nerd for even thinking that. Like, it's very much (laughs) I've been made fun of before when we were discussing, like, if you won the lottery, what would you do? And I said, I would want to continue doing some kind of work. And that is, you know, just absurd to the majority of the people that I talk to. A lot of my friends are kind of going, I do just want a simple nine to five where I can just kind of do it easily. It makes me plenty of money. And at the end of the day, I can just switch off and go live my life. And who I am is not what I do for work. So it's really weird because it kind of fits into those two camps. Because I have some friends like me who are really ambitious and driven and want to be, you know, I'm a writer. I want to achieve these like massive life and work goals. And then on the flip side, there are people that are just going, I don't dream of a job. I don't dream of labour at all. I just want to be comfortable and be able to do things that actually make me happy.
1: So, yeah, yeah, I can definitely see that. One of the things I'm wondering then is that there's clearly a whole range of different perspectives. There's some people who their work needs to be meaningful. They need to think about the impact of their work. And there's clearly other people, whether this is generational or not, who see work as a transaction. And one of the things I wondered was whether... The transactional nature of work has changed slightly. I wonder whether previous generations just put up and dealt with the impact of work upon them, because there was a sort of clear deal on the table. If you shut up and you did thirty years of work, you got a house out of it. And you know what? It was often it was three bedroom house, and it was in a zone less than a hundred. And you know, you you're able to get to work in a meaningful time. And by putting up with work, by pe- keeping quiet, you're able to achieve something. And that transaction doesn't seem to be what work represents anymore. And I was interested whether you think that's perceived by people entering the workforce. I was interested whether the the people who were were willing to speak out were just like, hang on, what have I got to lose here? I've I'm already signed up for a really bad deal. And I was interested in your perspective in that because... because Maybe mistakenly, I thought that's why maybe younger workers, Gen Z workers, were expressing more discontent. I'm interested in your take on work as a transaction.
2: Yeah, no, that's a hundred percent a thing. I think the harsh kind of reality that a lot of us have grown up to is that the kind of dream we were sold of you will get this amazing job and it will be brilliant and you'll love it and you'll make enough money and be able to buy this amazing place. The majority of my friends don't own their house you know they're getting rent increases salaries are rubbish at the moment because of recession and inflation you know people are facing redundancies it's really bleak and I think also with women especially a lot of us have experiences of entering the workforce working really really hard and thinking if I work hard I'll be rewarded for it with promotions and more money and that doesn't happen and it's so easy as a result of that to just be like, oh, what's the point? What am I actually doing this for? And I think also we're starting to really question, not to go on an anti-capitalist like capitalist rant, but we're really starting to question, what am I working for? Is there an actual meaning to this work or is it just to make someone else a lot of money? And if so, why am I not seeing a benefit from this? If I'm not getting the salary I deserve, or want. Um, I'm not able to buy the things that I would like, like a house and basic, you know, bills. Um, Why am I doing this? Why am I making myself miserable? I think that's where people are starting to go. If I can't at least get all the money that I thought I would, the least I can do is try to be somewhat content and not be super stressed out and giving up my life for this work
1: And I guess that leads into the uh, the things that I've seen you've written about, Uh, discussions about quiet quitting or bare minimum Monday, I saw you wrote about. And one thing you talked about was the ambi-work movement, the idea where people are, I guess, ambivalent about work. So people might adapt their attitudes to work because of what it represents.
2: I think you have to, because like I say, sometimes you can be putting in all the effort in the world. And you just won't be rewarded financially for it or in certain industries you have to kind of recognize that i might not get everything that i would like from work so i need to tweak my behaviors and make sure that at the least it's not at the sacrifice of my mental mental well-being um with quiet quitting it's a tricky one for me to talk about because when i wrote about it people got very very angry online um, and I... What
1: happened? Because I remember oh contacting God. you immediately after that and you were like, yeah, maybe, but not now.
2: It was so bad. It was so bad. Basically, I wrote about it. Um, but people seem to misunderstand and think I had come up with the idea, which I didn't. It was someone on TikTok and I was just writing about the trend. Um, and they, the basic argument was, um, doing less at work shouldn't be called a form of quitting um because you're still working uh and the implication became because you've called it this you're pro work you're like a bootlicker um it it went it went very dark
1: Oh God, I like the fact it was actually the anti-work movement yes. that was coming for you, rather than the forty-hour-a-week wage slave people. I presumed it was people saying, "I presumed it was people saying, uh, how can you suggest that you can have this detached relationship with work?"
2: That's. I was really surprised because I was sure that it would be kind of, frankly, older people. going, oh, these lazy millennials don't want to work. That didn't come. It was purely more anti-work people saying you shouldn't be calling this quiet quitting um this is just doing your job we shouldn't be stretching ourselves beyond the bare minimum i did something a couple of
1: weeks ago that was all about the ceo pay gap the average 250 ceo ft 250 ceo was paid 1.7 million pounds in 2021 38 percent increase on the figure of 2020 The average FT250 CEO is paid 55 times the median UK worker. And that's increased, that went up from 40 times the year before. It's really hard to reconcile, isn't it? Because if you're being told that your pay isn't going up because of financial reasons, and yet you see your boss's pay going up, it's hard then for people not to see a systemic failure and wonder... What would happen here? you know obviously you write about these things, but it, with with your friends who maybe aren't as focused on them, does this lead to a disengagement with work, or do people find themselves becoming politicized by the injustice of these things?
2: Yeah, I think it's both I think it's that kind of activism this is this system isn't working, and things should change, but then it's also just a lot of my friends are burnt out, they don't really have the active choice of going. I'm going to do less. They're being forced to do less. Like they're being signed off work. Um, they're coming back and they're saying, okay, I have to find a way to work without it being to the detriment of my own well-being." I don't, It like I say, it's both of those things and kind of both of those camps. Um, but both situations aren't, I think the key is neither are people being lazy or going, I'm going to, you know, take the piss and just do the bare minimum. It's because we're being forced into this situation. We're having jobs that aren't paying us enough or aren't fulfilling enough um, or that we don't really understand the kind of why behind certain, why certain decisions are made. So kind of the only option, because we can't just go, actually, I want to completely change how CEOs are paid and I want to change the structure what we can control is how much work we're putting in and how much effort we're putting in. So that's kind of our last, our last and only means of fighting back against it a bit or taking some semblance of control is going, I can limit how much of myself I'm going to put into this.
1: I've been really intrigued with this anti-work movement and, and, you know, trying to sort of take it on board actually, because it's, when you do podcasts like this, you can find yourself wondering, wow, am I becoming the agent of some sort of malign forces? Maybe this is what they listen to on the Death Star of trying to motivate people. And I'm really struck, there's a juxtaposition who listen to these things, who might have reached a level of manager, or they might have reached a level of responsibility. And they're sitting there thinking, I need to motivate my team. And in the same way, podcasts like this might be Trying to give people tips about building motivation, you know, getting a bit of pizza for lunchtime and, or, or providing breakfast for people. And it seems to be fundamentally missing the fact that the whole foundation of the relationship of work doesn't seem to be working. Uh, I posted a link last week on my newsletter of Joel Golby. And, and Joel Golby is a writer who, for a long time, wrote this article, London Rental Property of the Week. And I shared it largely because... Yeah, it's the
2: final one. Uh, That's right. Fantastic.
1: It's sort of like the bookend to his seven years doing it. And I just felt it was such a valuable way for someone to empathize that, you know, Mm -hmm. they might think that they bought a house 10 years ago and so they tell themselves that they've had their own struggles and the first time that they were in work, it was really hard for them. But I felt that this post, this article was a, a valuable way for people who might have gone through that, to empathise with their co-workers, who maybe they've not got a full understanding of the lives that their co-workers are living right now. And it was just a, an important way for them to see that. Because when you talk about ambi-work, you're saying effectively, as far as I know, you're saying that, you know, it's not that people are anti-work, they're just a little bit more ambivalent about the the deal that it represents. It's it doesn't seem to be something that they can get excited about in the same way. Is is that right? Am I putting words in your mouth?
2: I think AmbiWork is going, I can do what I need to do. I can do my basic job and in return I will get paid a wage and that's about it. I don't need to put all of myself into this and I can recognise that outside of work I'm my own person and I can do other things. Um, I think I'm not fully part of the ambi work movement because I am more like pro work driven. Um, but I think that to me is more attainable than the anti-work movement, which I just can't, I respect it for other people, but I can't, I can't get on board with it because I just, I I would really struggle without any kind of, this is what I'm doing in my life and I feel like I need that kind of structure. And that may make me a nerd and a bootlicker, but that's <laughs> that's how I feel. Um but I do think ambi work is again just that kind of way for us to get some kind of balance back and wrestle some kind of control over things that don't feel controllable. Um like high rent prices and salaries being very low, just getting some kind of adaptations and making work somewhat work for you that isn't going to be completely taking over your life. And I
1: guess the conversation here is a degree of helplessness about, look, you know, work is such, is proving to be a wretched deal for people. It's proving as a result of that, it's difficult to feel for younger workers inspired and motivated by what the big boss is saying. I did did a Zoom call in the middle of the pandemic where in one organisation, the big boss was there and I was there... And, you know, people were dialing in and the big boss had a massive grand piano behind him. And uh, there was one person genuinely sort of, you you know, you you get an insight into people's homes. There was one person who looked honestly like he was taking the call from inside the microwave. And it it looked (laughs) looked like the only quiet place in his flat. And it was just fascinating, contrasting perspectives. I thought that's probably not going to land in the way that the big boss was thinking. So put us in a more solution oriented perspective what could be done to fix this i'd I'd love to get your perspective on that
2: i think the thing is we're not at all doomed for all work to be terrible i genuinely really get a lot of enjoyment from my current job i think it's great and the reason that is i think i can point to kind of two reasons is number one i feel like the purpose of what i'm doing there aligns with like my bigger Life purpose of what I want to be doing, but also I've managed to implement and have been able to implement because of the current working culture time where I can leave on time and I can come home and I can work on other things that are outside of my main job. Um, like I'm trying to write fiction, and that's a huge part of my happiness and well being at work because I'm able to separate it and do those things. In terms of the practical things that I think managers and bosses can do, it's number one, allowing for those two things, either someone having purpose at work in the work they're doing or giving them the space to be able to pursue passions outside of work. But in concrete terms, that is, I would say, firstly, making sure there's a real understanding of why we're doing what we're doing. I think a lot of times in big businesses, there's not enough communication between the really top, top people and the kind of junior workers who are actually doing the main production side of things. Um, And as a result, it can be kind of aimless or not really understanding what is the vision here? Like, why am I putting myself through this difficult or unpleasant task if I don't really understand what the end goal of it is? I think that's really key. I also think that having managers and bosses who actually know what it's like to be in those junior positions makes such a huge difference. I think part of the reason why I really did well at Metro was because I worked my way up and thus I ad- had a real understanding of what it takes to, you know, write an article or do kind of the really specific tasks. So I wouldn't be just piling piling on writer's workloads, because I would actually have an understanding of, I know it will take you like this long. It's not just a, I'll just knock this up or whatever. I think actually having an understanding of that, but also having an understanding of what these people's lives are like outside of work. I think the grand piano kind of thing is such a good example of if you have a manager who's completely out of touch and not understanding or being aware of the fact that this person does make less than you. Are they able to buy a place? Are they able to even rent a place in London or the city where you're living? Are you being cognizant of that? And as a result, are you expecting too much when you're asking them to, in addition to working for not enough money, expect them to give up their weekends or their evenings for those kind of things. I think it's just the understanding And like I say, the communication from the top right down to kind of the bottom, more junior roles is so key. And that's how you improve happiness, because without that, you will just be resentful and confused about what your manager and boss actually wants from you. And it's very easy to then cast them in that light of like, oh, they're sitting up there in their ivory tower. They don't know what I'm doing. They don't know what I'm you know, what I'm struggling and what I'm up against. um, That's the key. Understanding and communication was my long-winded answer. But those are the big things. Give me your perspective
1: on a couple of things. I'm interested in your view on, I guess, what might pejoratively be called forced fun, you know, team engagements. Mm -hmm. I witnessed someone saying to me last week, look, you know, I don't want to participate in team fun. I don't want any more friends. I don't want to have those interactions forced upon me i just want to do my job and i wonder whether you perceive there to be a generational difference in attitudes there or not and i guess the second part is your views on the relationship with the office you've mentioned the office a couple of times there you clearly do some of your own work in the office one of the things we're often told is maybe gen z workers you know they're told we're told they love the office or or them variously, that they don't want to go back to the office. I've definitely seen in research that people of colour and young women have said that actually working from home protected them from some sort of continuous microaggressions or micro from colleagues, and they enjoy the protection of not going in and being exposed to that. So I'm mean, interested broadly in the, the themes of sociability and your view on the office, really.
2: I think, I don't know if it's a generational difference. I think it's more just an individual difference because everyone I was spoken to will have completely different views on, I love being in the office all the time or I want to be home all the time. And I think the answer to that is that it needs to be flexible and adaptable to what people individually need. For me personally, I really like the kind of hybrid thing of doing a couple of days in the office, a couple of days from home, because I realise that, The actual social connection aspect is so vital in terms of, firstly, mental health again, but also in terms of idea generation. It really is such, with journalism, so many of the best ideas don't come out of meetings or enforced kind of brainstorming sessions. It's just us chatting about things going, oh my God, yes, I also relate to that. Let's write about it and explore it. Um, I think with enforced fun, People aren't, yeah, I think most of my friends are not fans of it. And I think the issue with a lot of enforced fun is that it's outside of work hours. So it's encroaching on that personal separation of like work me and personal life me. However, if you were to say, okay, we're taking the afternoon off so that we can go and hang out and chat and just knock ideas about, that's fantastic. That's a great way to do it. That enables us to really understand there's value in social connection and doing not pure like production stuff and just going okay actually there's benefits to us spending time together and talking and communicating ideas in that way without expecting people and again a lot of times it's junior people who you know aren't having the best time with finances and with work in general asking them to give up their free time for that is just going to build up more and more resentment. Even if you're, you know, giving free pizza or going to the pub or whatever, it's still spilling over into that time.
1: Tell me, do do you think, aside from generational stuff, do you think we're about to enter a golden era of office politics? The reason why I say that is the A toxic era of, of of office politics, I mean because I heard, I, i'm just hearing lots of little things. I heard one yesterday someone said to me that they someone in their office goes into work every Friday into the office every Friday because he knows the, the only the financial directors there and the finance director notices him every week and you know one of the upsides of flexible working was that it was a level playing field, and people were able to deal with their care responsibilities or their hobbies or their their the complexity of their commute. And they're able to to work in a sort of level playing field without fear of judgment. And we've turned pretty quickly to an era where presenteeism is actually showing up and showing FaceTime in the office. Is becoming, quietly, it's becoming a, a really big deal. It's perceived as having a value. And so even if a company might overtly claim to value flexibility, I wonder if office politics is about to get a huge boost because there's going to be so many people playing Machiavellian games. What's your thoughts on that?
2: Oh, yeah, 100%. And I think with hybrid work, that's going to get even worse because if one person's in on one day, another person could go, okay, so we'll arrange the meetings when they're not in so that I can be scheming and kind of essentially backstab them or to make my, like you say, kind of have more face time, show that I'm a really hard worker. I think it's really difficult as well when everyone is working remotely. It's much easier not that I've done this, obviously, for someone else to convince them that they're not working hard. Um, Because if someone isn't always available on Slack um, or isn't visibly doing work, it's easier for someone else to sow kind of seeds of doubt of going, well, what are they really up to? Um, I think in the office, micromanagement was a lot easier um, because obviously you could just look over at someone's desk and see what they're actually up to. Um, But yes, I think office politics is going to be an interesting one and will continue to be complicated and difficult as we keep trying to resume this hybrid, half in, half out way of working.
1: I used to work in social media and the thing that we learned was that everything when it comes out feels like it's the best thing in the world any any new innovation feels like it's the greatest thing that's happened and it takes you a while to work out the really bad unintended consequences of it and the return of a huge amount of office politics i think is is going to be the dark underbelly of this stuff so just with a mind for some as we're ending some future facing stuff i wonder if someone who spots trends and looking out for these things over the last few weeks and months we've seen various derivatives of quiet quitting talked about quite committing all these things maybe we're in pursuit of too many trends but are there any broad attitudinal developments that you think are something to look out for and to watch
2: i think that At the moment, the trends I'm seeing are really split into two camps because you have the quiet quitting and the taking a step back, acting your wage trend. But at the same time, there's a real hustle culture. Um, I think on TikTok it's like the corporate baddie trend where it's just all about work and ambition and driving yourself forward. And I think the trend that I'm really noticing at the moment is optimizing the pre-work and post-work thing. I don't know if you know the five to nine and six to nine trends, um, but that's just people sharing, okay, I wake up at 5 a.m. and I do, you know, this full Pilates routine and then I walk on my treadmill and really optimizing every moment that isn't their main bulk of work. I think that's going to continue to be a thing, but also we might see a bit of a backlash of people going, you know, I'm working all day. The last thing I want to do is have to come home and do all this super productive personal stuff and make my personal life like kind of like a job, essentially making those same kind of requirements. So I think while the five to nine and six to nine trends are going, there's going to be a bit of a a opposing side questioning what we're doing. And just, I think the, I can't remember what the word is, but do you remember the lie flat movement that kind of came over from Japan?
1: Yeah. In China, or something like that, I think.
2: There we go. (laughs) But I think that's going to come back in terms of outside of working hours, because I think a lot of us are just going to go. It's great to have these super optimized evenings and mornings, but what if we do just want to do nothing for a bit and that should be fine as well. Um, it's not just about, I think, quite quitting our work selves, but also our personal selves and realising that we can't be productive and optimising our best selves 24-7. Something we'll have to give. Just
1: to, to wrap up, really, I guess the things we haven't talked about, we haven't talked about, you know, that, that, that thing that sort of waned from public consciousness a bit now, but the, the metaverse, or I guess more interestingly, AI. And do you think, what's your perspective on whether you think AI is set to have an impact on work in the short or medium term?
2: I think realistically with AI and the metaverse for at least the next 10 years, it will be senior people trying to use them and just doing a really bad job of it and then having to backpedal and go like, oh, actually this was a terrible idea. I think at the moment the metaverse it's, it's just not cool at the moment. It's a really like cringy and uncomfortable kind of place to be. It's not doing what people kind of hoped and dreamed it would. Um, and the same with AI, you know, it's really easy to get swept up in, oh my God, like we can get AI to do all our menial tasks and it'll be great. But then you actually try it and you're going, okay, I have to go back and edit all of this because it doesn't really make sense or, you know, it's legally really dubious.
1: Not stylist, but there there must be other publications who are considering AI generation, you know. There must be things adjacent to what we're doing, surely.
2: Oh, 100%. Yeah, even content. Uh, This wasn't, not even with ChatGPT, I would say about must have been eight years ago or so now, there were a lot of conversations about in terms of straight news stories where it's the same press release or it's the same police statement, why not just get an AI to do that But And I think that makes total sense. If if it's fully effective and great and smooth running, we absolutely should be outsourcing that kind of work to it so that people can work on specifically in journalism so that journalists can work on those more creative, deeper dive stuff that only a human can really do for now, anyway, I think it makes total sense to use AI like that, but sadly, I think at the moment it's not good enough to do that without any of the kind of errors or you know those kind of things and I think the risk is that companies and bosses will see it go, "Okay, this is great, this is a way to save money, rush in, try to roll it out." and then very quickly go, actually, we're not ready for this fully. This isn't working as much as we would have liked and have to quickly reverse it and go back on it. Um, I think that will happen with a lot of the new technology. People get very excited about newness and then realise it maybe isn't all it's cracked up to be.
1: Okay, like it. Give us the update on how you're getting on with the fiction you're writing.
2: Oh, um, okay. I started a novel in January. I'm on about 13,000 words. Um, you know, if there are any agents listening, we'd love to chat. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, it's going uh, well.
1: How many words you targeting?
2: Um, so at least like 90,000 for the first draft. Um, it's going to be chunky. It's just, it's just the motivation of getting it done. And I think also it's always tricky when your main job is writing. Sometimes you come back and you're like, the last thing I want to do is type in a thing. But trying to get into the routine of that is challenging, but fun.
1: Ellen, I am so grateful for your time today. Thank you so much. and It's been lovely to chat to you. The themes that you've helped us give a broader perspective on, it's really helped and refreshing to hear your take. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Thank you, Ellen. Now, there's a few things that come from that. If you are interested in that Joel Golby article that I mentioned, the, uh, the the London rental property of the week, because we discussed it briefly, you'll find that in the show notes and these links to all the things we discussed. I'm really grateful to Ellen for sort of giving a perspective that quite often I, I neglect on this podcast. So, uh, very grateful to her and the insights she gave. Thank you so much. I've been Bruce Daisley. Always welcome the feedback that you provide me. See you next time.
0: Luxury quality within reach, go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.